Chapter Fourteen of the Short Line War by Merwin Webster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Capture at Brushingham. On the same Wednesday morning, John Donahue was oiling the old switch engine, preparatory to making up a train of coal cars. Since his ride with the president, John had been even more silent than before. His work had been done with the same gruff independence, and his firemen had received the usual quota of stern rebukes. In fact, John was outwardly so like his old self that none suspected him of emotion, but John knew how thin was the veneer. It is hard upon a man to lose ground in the great struggle. Conscious of his ability, proud in his experience, John grew daily more bitter at the prospect before him, and more hostile to his superiors. For a few days after the ride he had hoped for some word. He had felt that such an appeal as the one he had made to Jim Weeks should be productive of some notice, if not of a definite result. But as the week wore away and no word came, his heart sank. Every day he rattled the dumpy little engine about the division yards, chewing the stem of his pipe and hardening his heart against the world. He spent Sunday in his room at the boarding-house, for he had no family. Monday and Tuesday passed in worse than solitude, and when Wednesday morning came, and with it a message from the division superintendent, John, in spite of his hopes, was taken by surprise. The message was addressed to the agent and was very brief. Send J. Donahue and Fireman to Manchester at once. John and his firemen took sixteen for Manchester. Beyond a brief word, John had said nothing, but his heart was disturbed. He was sure that it couldn't mean discharge, for they would not call him north for that. A word and a check would have settled it. It was hardly likely that one of the passenger engineers was to be reduced in his favor. John knew the inside history of every man's connection with the road, and he could see no reason for a change. No, as he worked it over and over in his mind during the three-hour ride, he began to suspect that there was special work to be done. If John had been present at the brief scene in Madison's office that morning, or if there had been a friend at court to tell him of it, he would have been a happy man. For while Jim Weeks, aggressive as ever, was organizing his forces for the defense of the road. Jim foresaw what Porter's next move in the natural course of events would be. Madison had turned to the division superintendent and said, "'Who can you put on the engine if we have to come to rough work? The nerviest man we've got.' And before the other could reply, Jim had turned from a conversation with Harvey to say, "'Donahue's got to take out that train. He's on a switch engine at Tillman.' Jim was continually surprising his subordinates with his intimate knowledge of the details of management. Madison had long been accustomed to his ways, but he gave Jim a glance of wonder before he repeated the order to the division chief. And so John was called to Manchester as the nerviest man on the road. In the meantime, a scene not unlike that at Truesdale was being enacted in and about the Manchester station. There was the same reticence, and the studied quiet and perfect discipline were even more pronounced. For with Jim and Harvey to issue orders, and with Madison and Mallory to execute them, 
the chance of a slip or a misunderstanding was too slight to be considered. A long train of tourist cars was made up shortly after noon and backed into the train shed, where it lay waiting orders. Jim had no very definite idea of using it, at least until force was the only expedient, but he had been through too many fights to be caught off his guard. Instructions were wired from the dispatcher's office to the operators all along the line, ordering them to report promptly any irregularity or suspicious circumstance. Meanwhile, the regular trains for Truesdale pulled out through the yards and went on their way. When John came into the superintendent's office at two o'clock, he found a group of men standing in nervous attitudes, all evidently awaiting orders. A boy stopped him and asked his business. "'I want to see Mr. Madison,' said John, removing his pipe and holding it awkwardly. John, though at home on an engine, was ill at ease in an office. "'Can't see him,' snapped the boy. "'He's busy.' "'He's sent for me.' "'Name, please.' "'Donahue.' "'Sit down, Mr. Donahue.' John sat down in a corner, and the boy disappeared. In a short time he returned and led John to Madison's desk. Madison wasted no time, but told him the situation in a few sentences. "'Now, Donahue,' he said in conclusion, "'you understand, do you, that we are putting a big responsibility on you. Mr. West will be in command, and you will be subject to his orders without question.' But if for any reason you should have to act rapidly, or should be thrown on the defensive, I shall expect you to do what is best for the road. Run no unnecessary risks, but remember, we must hold the line at any cost, if we lose an engine doing it. Do you understand? John, standing beside the oak desk, looked down at the superintendent and nodded gravely. Madison returned the look with a brief searching gaze. Then he turned to his work, saying, "'Very well, you may go.' Harvey was all over the station. The strain of the last two days had told upon his nerves, but the prospect of a conflict buoyed him up. He had a long talk with Mallory, in which a campaign was mapped out as fully as was possible in the circumstances. It had been decided to hold the men ready to board the train at a moment's notice, but Harvey, as three o'clock came, ordered them aboard, for he realized that the longer the delay the greater would be the need of prompt action. So the long line filed out across the platform to the waiting cars, and the men made themselves comfortable for a long wait. Mallory stationed two of his own men in each car, with orders to maintain strict discipline. In the baggage car were stored extra chains, hawsers, coupling links, crowbars, patent frogs, and every other device which, in Madison's estimation, could be used in case of extreme circumstances, and there were chairs for Harvey and his lieutenants. Later, Harvey walked up to the engine where John and his firemen were oiling and polishing. "'Everything all right, Donahue?' he asked. John growled and looked back at the coal in the tender. "'She ain't much of an engine,' he replied." Harvey looked her over. She was an ordinary light yard engine with a footboard in place of the pilot and with a sloping tank. He called to the yardmaster who stood near. "'Haven't you got a better engine than this, Pratt?' Pratt came across the platform. 
"'I understood you wanted an old one,' he said. "'We do,' replied Harvey. "'But we want one that will hold a little water, "'and one that can make time if necessary. "'Shall I change, sir?' "'It rests with the engineer. "'Donahue, can you do anything with this engine?' "'John leaned against the cab and slowly shook his head. "'Get another, then,' said Harvey, "'and as the change was effected, John's heart was won. In an unreasoning way he promptly attributed his changed condition to Harvey, for in spite of his gruff shell the colonel of John's nature was keenly susceptible to kindness, and to him a good engine and plenty of authority was the greatest kindness in life. For two hours the train waited. Then, at five o'clock, a detail was sent into the restaurant, and the men were supplied with sandwiches and coffee, eating without leaving their seats. In half an hour all were fed, and they stretched out on the cane seats as comfortably as their crowded condition permitted. The long wait did not improve tempers, and it was a sullen, weary trainload that counted the minutes on into the dusk. John sat on his high seat and dozed. The suspense was even more tense in the offices on the second floor of the station. Jim and Harvey spent most of the time in the private office, going over every possible combination of circumstances. Jim giving Harvey explicit directions for each case, when to use force, when not, when to call on the law, and when to send for aid. Occasionally, Jim would call in Madison to ask a question concerning some detail of the road, or he would send for Mallory to explain more fully his directions. It was plain that Jim desired to leave nothing to chance, now that the real struggle was on, but to throw all his available resources into the conflict. Madison had a map drawn for Harvey, which showed every station, curve, switch, and siding. This Harvey studied during the lulls in the conversation, and as he already was familiar with all but the minor details of construction, he soon had his information upon a working basis. At 6.15, Madison came in. Mr. Weeks, he said, the dispatcher reports something the matter. For two or three hours, he says, the local reports have been confused and unsatisfactory. A few minutes ago, he called up Tillman City and hasn't yet succeeded in getting any reply. The local men are sending in train reports, but something isn't right. He's got a notion that they aren't our old men. Tell them to try again, said Jim. Ask them something a new man wouldn't know. Madison left the office and hurried to the stairway. On the landing, he met a newsboy who was running up, calling, "'Chicago Eden Papers! Extry! All about big railroad war!' Madison seized a paper and glanced at the headings. "'Fight for M and T,' he read. "'Trunk line gobbles small road.' His eye ran over the article. It was dated that afternoon from Truesdale. He turned and ran up the stairs, dashing into Jim's office and spreading the paper on the table. "'It's up to us,' he said. "'They've been at work all the afternoon.' As he spoke, a boy came running into the office. "'Message from Brian, sir.' Madison snatched the paper and read aloud. "'C&SC train leaving Tillman, north, seizing road. Stevens.' "'That's the Tillman agent,' said Madison. "'What's he doing at Brian?' "'Probably had to run for it,' responded Harvey, putting on his hat and buttoning his coat. 
That means fast work. Clear the track for me, Mattison. Wait a minute, said Jim. Have we any trains north of Bryan? No. Then don't send any orders. They would warn the other side. No, go ahead and beat them if you have to break their heads. As Harvey dashed out of the office, Jim's eyes sparkled. He liked to do his own fighting, and it was half regretfully that he turned to the superintendent. If they're as near as that, Mattison, it means trouble. You'd better collect another gang and send it out after West. Take men off the trains, out of the yards, anywhere you can get them. The wheels were soon in motion again, and another train backed under the iron roof and slowly filled with brawny men. Harvey swung aboard his train, and it started with a jerk, rolling rapidly over the network of tracks, past the switch tower, under the signal bridge, and out toward the open country. The little army was not sullen now. Figures sat erect, eyes flashed, young men spoke eagerly, older ones gruffly, and through the train ran a steady murmur of inquisitive wonder. Apparently, save for a few dozen sticks and clubs, the men were not armed, but many hip pockets bulged suspiciously. In the baggage car, Harvey and Mallory were talking earnestly. Mallory was for traveling slowly, lest they should encounter a loose rail or an open switch. But Harvey disagreed. He spread the map out on a box and rested a finger on the dot marked Tillman City. "'There they are,' he said, or were a few minutes ago, and they're coming right toward us. Now, to keep us from getting word, they have to stop at every telegraph station, and that takes time. We've got a clear track, and can travel fully twice as fast as they can. Here,' he moved his finger up the line of the road, "'here at Brushingham it is a long siding.' I want to make that siding before they do. Why? Because we must pass them there. They aren't going to lie up and let us run by. Yes, they are, said Harvey. Wait a moment. He called to a brakeman who stood at the door. Go up to the engine and tell the engineer to get to the siding at Brushingham at full speed. The man nodded and ran forward. Another moment, and those in the baggage car felt a jerk and a lift and soon they were rattling over the rails with sway and roll. Harvey, meantime, was explaining to Mallory a plan, which made that veteran chuckle merrily. His eyes wandered to the heap of chains, ropes, and iron piled on each side of the rear door, and he chuckled again. But Harvey's face was serious. "'It's something of a question whether we can get there in time, Mallory. It's a sixty-five-mile run for us,' to thirty-eight for them. We have all the advantage, of course, but there won't be any time to spare. He drew up his watch and timed the clicks of the rails. He's hitting it in good style. What are we making? About fifty and pulling up all the time. It won't take us much over an hour at this rate, and I don't believe that they can make it in anything like that time. There are a lot of little stations north of Tillman, and they've got to stop at every one. Nevertheless, as the minute hand crept around the watch, the two men began to peer out through the side window. It was dark now, and as the landmarks were not too familiar, either to Harvey or to Mallory, they were unable to get their bearings. 
"'Where are we?' Harvey called to the brakeman. "'Getting into St. John's,' was the reply. Sure enough, in another moment, colored yard lights were whizzing by. There was a great clatter as they took the switches, then a row of streaked electric lights, a dim impression of streets and of clanging bells, a shriek from the locomotive, and again they were in the open. A few minutes later, Harvey gave orders that a brakeman climb forward on the engine, ready to throw the Brushingham switch. Soon the car jarred and struggled under the air brake, and then slowed down, grinding and pounding almost to a stop. The brakes were released, and the train rolled easily out beyond the station, onto the long siding. Harvey pulled the signal cord. "'Now, Mallory,' he said, as the train came to a standstill, "'we can go ahead.' Mallory picked up a patent frog from the floor, and with Harvey and the brakeman swung out of the car and ran down the track. From the windows projected a long row of heads, but no questions were asked as the three men ran forward. A short distance ahead of the engine they stopped. Away to the south, a small bright light rounded into view. "'Here she comes,' said Mallory. Harvey made no reply, and the frog was adjusted to the east rail of the main track. Then they went back and clambered aboard the engine. Mallory ordered a squad of men forward and stationed some on the pilot and running board, others on the tender and front platform. The light grew slowly larger, sending out pointed rays and throwing a shine on the rails. There was the sound of a bell and of the exhaust, and the train pulled slowly toward the bleak little station. Suddenly, when within speaking distance, the approaching engine struck the patent frog and left the rails with a jar and a scrape, plowing her nose into the slag. "'Go ahead,' said Harvey. John pulled the throttle lever, and the long train moved slowly southward. Number 14 was not full now. The process of dropping men at every station had left only about half the employees, who clustered in the forward cars and looked curiously at the passing train. At a shouted order from Mallory, one of the men dropped off with a squad at his back and took possession of the wreck, while Harvey, flushed with victory, moved on to undo the work of the afternoon. End of chapter 14